This is The Radical Therapist, a space where we explore the intersections of collaborative therapy, philosophy, art and science and technology in a post-Freud, post-psychology world. Welcome to The Radical Therapist. This is your host, Chris Hoff, and we are now at episode number 84, and today we are meeting with Sasha Pilkington, and we're talking about narrative therapy at the end of life and palliative care, uh, hospice, etc., and uh, you, just an episode you're not going to want to miss. Uh, but before we get there, let's uh, a couple quick announcements. Uh, I just wanted to let you know about the Radical Therapist YouTube channel. There's a lot of new videos up there. I just did one on technology and therapy and how uh, technology, Silicon Valley, is looking to disrupt the way therapy is done. And you're seeing a lot of changes, a lot of apps. There's over 20,000 uh, mental health related apps in the App Store uh, currently. Uh, so there's a lot going on and I have a take. And so if you're interested in that kind of thing, go check out the Radical Therapist YouTube channel. And of course, we are on all the social medias. Come find us on Instagram, the Radical Therapist on Instagram. And we have a Facebook page, Radical Therapist on Facebook. And I'm on Twitter. Uh, and also on Patreon. If you want to support the work we're doing here, please consider checking out The Radical Therapist on Patreon. Uh, this a video of this conversation will be found there. And so you can go check that out um, if interested. And of course, as always, please share this episode. And if you are listening, please rate and review the show. Uh, if you're on iTunes, please rate and review it. That's how we get out in front of everybody. would be much appreciated. So, uh, so those are my quick announcements. And let's get to our guest. Sasha McCallum-Pilkington has worked since 2008 as a counselor for Harbor Hospice in Auckland, Aotearoa, New Zealand. As part of Sasha's weekly practice, she meets with people who are living with a life-ending illness and their families, both in the community and in the hospice inpatient unit. She also meets with family members who are grieving after someone has died. Sasha has written a number of papers about her work and has a new one coming out in the, uh, I think there's a special issue coming out at the Narrative Therapy Journal, so keep a lookout on that. But she has written a number of papers about her work, including illustrations of narrative therapy and palliative care. And so without further ado, let's meet with Sasha. Hi, Sasha. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Chris. Tēnā koe. Tēnā koutou katoa. Ko Ben Loman, tōku maunga. Ko Lock Loman, tōku moana. Ko McCallum, tōku iwi. No kororana o kutipuna, engari i harimai o kutipuna ki Aotearoa nei. No reira, ka mihi hoki o kete iwi Māori. Ko James Copeland, tōku tipuna. Ko Hamish McCallum, tōku papa. Ko Jan Hutchison, tōku mama. Ko Gavin Pilkington, tōku tāne pūrotu. Ko Sasha McCallum Pilkington, tōku ingwa. Nō reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou. Kia ora katātou katoa. Chris, that's a, um, a pepiha, and I'm introducing myself according to tikanga Māori, to, uh, according to Māori process, and I think that that's, um, it's a really beautiful way of introducing because what I've just said is I've introduced myself, first of all, according to the mountain that I connect with in Scotland, which was Ben Lomond, to the water, which is uh, Loch Lomond, 
uh, and to the community of people, the clan, the my iwi, which are tribe, or in Scotland, the clan of Callum, mm. and also according to my ancestors, so the, the people who have died have gone before me, and also those who I'm connected to who are still living. And I'm at the very end, and I love that because it, uh, I'm not just me as an individual, but um, an expression of many different interconnections. And it seems such a, a wise way of uh, beginning um, uh, or such a wise practice um, when we're talking about dying. So, mm, yeah, that was beautiful. Yeah. Thank you for and sh- for sharing that. Um, Okay, uh, I suppose we could start uh, to say a bit about how you found yourself working in hospice and doing end-of-life work. Well, I could tell many stories, of course, (laughs) (laughs) and I'm kind of wondering which one to tell. I guess I I thought that it could be really meaningful. I'd already uh, been practicing as a narrative therapist for 20 years, and I'd had the opportunity to have some conversations more by chance uh, with people who were living with a life-ending illness and their families. And um, I'd had an experience, you know, where those conversations have been really meaningful. So I thought that um, the work at hospice might be. And I was also very interested in working more with couples and families um, rather than having most of my work with individuals. Um, Oh. And I was interested in our relationship with our bodies and uh, when our bodies become sick. And I've, I've also had a, quite a fascination with unsolvable problems and being with rather than going up against. Mm. So there were many reasons. Uh, and when I got there, um, uh I mean, I I really see day to day, I think, sometimes the best in our humanity. There is so much of the doing of love in mm. care and in, uh, and in grieving. Um, and it, even when it might come out, be expressed as irritability, you know, I, I, or grumpiness, but I see people who are getting up at night to care for somebody who are, dying but thinking of their family, people who are caring for people they may have uh, had a relationship with but no longer uh, uh, connected in that way. I see people who are caring for people they don't even like. Mm-hmm. So it's quite it's an inspirational place for me, you know, and I, uh, I'm learning all the time. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. Um, so, yeah, your, pra- your practice addresses the influence of dominant uh, Western discourses or scripts on our relationship with illness and death and how our relationships with this, with this is culturally constructed. And I wonder if you could say more about these discourses and how they influence our views of illness and death. Sure. I mean, there are many ideas that shape our relationship with illness and death and uh, perhaps I'll mention just a few that I come across, but I certainly won't be, uh, won't, you know, we, we could talk all day about uh, them. There's so many. Perhaps one to start with might be our relationship, that our relationship is shaped by would be that we live in a death-defying society. I think that's what some authors have called it, that mm-hmm. we uh, 
I guess, resist our mortality. You know, we um, we, we don't uh, embrace aging. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm talking about um, Western ideas, of course, and uh, that they're not what everybody thinks, but that these are some influential ideas that are circulating. Uh, we don't tend to use the language even of death and dying. Um, we perhaps many people are uncomfortable talking about it. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that this has a huge impact on people um, who are in the last phase of their life or get the news that they've got a life-ending illness because death isn't familiar. They may not even have a language to talk about their experience. Um, death is positioned as something bad that's to be fought, which, of course, is a very useful idea for many people in many situations, but also uh, at the end of life when people might wish to be speaking more about quality of life or how they want to live. Uh, you know, that, that a lot of those death-defying ideas or um, a lack of openness about it can actually get in the way. So... Uh, that would be one one thought. Um, I think we're very used to it. We're increasingly reliant on medicine and science. You know, there's been many wonderful discoveries and breakthroughs, and uh, we've been spared many of the diseases that previous generations have had to face. Uh, but perhaps then uh, when there isn't a cure and we don't have certainty, that can be really difficult and we're, we're um, very used to things working, being solved and fixed and when they're no longer fixable it can be really tricky for people, very unfamiliar and scary so that can mm. you know, have quite an impact. I think uh, one idea that I just probably see just every day that's influential is um, what what Carla Willard calls um, a cultural imperative, which is to be positive. Um, And of course, the idea to be positive, you know, that can have uh, many helpful uh, impacts on our lives, but um, it it, it all depends on the way it's applied. And this idea that we must be positive and fight can uh, really shut down the space to talk about suffering and our mortality. Uh, And it can have uh, people fighting, uh, engaging with aggressive treatments to the end of their life. So um, it's sort of like they're looking to extend their life at any price rather than to perhaps have the opportunity to consider how they might want to live. And it also has family members feeling like, you know, the only way to respond is to cheer people up, mm. you know. So, again, you know, I think some of these ideas can be helpful, but they can also really rob people of um, the opportunity to practice skills around being with and acknowledging and uh, being alongside um, someone when they've got an incurable illness. Uh, and perhaps, can I mention one more? Sure, um, absolutely. There are many, but I see many people where they're very concerned about being a burden. Mm. And uh, I think that there we have some particular ideas circulating, you know, and uh, again, you know, uh, not everyone will hold them, but there are particular ideas about what's a worthwhile person. 
and uh, what kind of makes us worthwhile. And a lot of those are based around being physically able, around status and money and material things. And so it's not surprising that someone would be very concerned uh, about being a burden because they have the idea that they've got nothing to give. And, um, you know, that's a real shame because uh, when we're living with a, when someone's living with a serious illness, when they're approaching death, they've actually got so much to teach, mm. don't they? You know, they're teachers of what, what it, how you go about dying. They're, they're teachers in compassion. Mm. Um, there is so much reciprocity in care, you know. Mm. They, um, uh, the way that we receive care can have a really big impact on how the person who's doing it feels about themselves, how they, what kind of, partner, uh, nurse, doctor, whoever it might, friend, what they are. So, um, yeah, so, I mean, that's quite a topical one. So that's an idea. Um, that's not necessarily so again, but um, I, these ideas are influential. And, and I guess extending from that, well, another one might be just around individual ideas of responsibility, mm. that people feel that they can't, must have must be responsible in some way for getting sick, you know. They might say to me, well, I've eaten well and exercised and done all these things, you know, why have I got this? You know, I I must have done something wrong. And, you know, I I, I don't think that. (laughs) And it strikes me as a real shame that they have to feel like they're getting even uh, dying wrong, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's a, a very prescriptive environment about, uh how we should behave and um some of those prescriptions if applied in certain ways can be very unhelpful yeah yeah mm. the, the idea of teaching i don't i, I haven't heard that i really appreciating that because um you're, you have me thinking of something i just read recently by franz Wright, where he says uh how does one go about dying who on earth is going to teach me the world is filled with people who have never died, and uh, and it was just you just reminded me of that. How can that idea of that there's a reciprocity there that 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 teaching, and I don't think we access that um, in a way that may, maybe could be so powerful. I think. Yeah. 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 And it's not just about dying; it's yeah. about living. Yeah. Yeah. The people that I meet with are teaching me all the time about about living. Mm-hmm. And of course, will shape my own death, and it's such a gift. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so um, you have written, uh, and this is maybe another idea that shows up a lot in your work: this idea of denial. And you have written to consider therapeutic practice with people who are dying and their families. It is important that we understand how the notion of de- denial is constructed. And I'm wondering if you can. Uh, share a little bit about how you kind of take on the idea of denial that probably often comes up a lot in your work. Oh, I guess one of the interesting things is is that uh, what do we mean even by denial? And someone being in denial. Hmm. And um, Camilla Zimmerman, she's a Canadian palliative care specialist and researcher. She and some colleagues actually look through the palliative care literature. Uh, did a discourse analysis to try and uh, uh, search out, you know, the use of um, how the the notion of in denial was was presented in the literature. And there isn't 
a consistent use of it all. So mm-hmm. I guess the first thing to say is that we mean many different things by when we use the the term in denial. And um, uh, the other, so I'm kind of curious about that. So the, the first thing I'm thinking about was, well, what, if you use it, what do you mean by that? <laughs> yeah, right. The next thing is perhaps who's using it? Because I just spoke of how health professionals use it, but uh, it's, it's a term out there um, in sort of the wider social discourse. And uh, it's also uh, uh, it's used uh, by many people, uh, and it is also used by people about themselves. So just to sort of start there. But very often it describes, doesn't it, um, uh, uh, when someone is not perhaps directly engaging with something open and doing that openly, and in my in my practice that would be around um, a life, having a life ending illness and and the uh, and future dying. Uh, but the way that I understand it is, um, well, I, you know, I'm really interested in that person's the way that their their preferred relationship with the illness and uh, death. And um, I understand, I have an understanding, I mean, I guess it goes to this idea that, you know, that um, we can go around and expect someone to talk to us in particular at a time that suits us and in a way and, you know, with language that suits us rather than them. And if they don't comply with that, then, you know, it's quite possible that um, the label of in denial could be applied to them. Mm-hmm. So what I'm doing is I guess the first thing I'm doing is I'm just really interested in building a relationship and learning more about how they want to, first of all, go about the conversation, but then also about how they want to live with the illness. And I'm using a broad word like illness because I like to use really broad questions to start with so people can locate themselves and use the language that Mm. they want to use. They might not want to say the word cancer or they might. And I find that if I, um, uh, you know, build a kind of relationship where uh, they feel the best in themselves as being seen, that, that we can... And that I'm interested in their world and how they want to go about this, that we can uh, quite comfortably in the end perhaps have a conversation uh, about what um, perhaps that they're not talking freely about in other domains in their life. Yeah. Hmm. So, yeah. Should I say, do you have any sort of thoughts or questions about what I've just said? No, I I thought that was... uh, um wonderful description of how you do work with that and um making space for people the wider space right to see how people want to do want to talk about it and 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 rather than have it suit us i think that's like that was really important right yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah. i mean it could be excruciating Mm -hmm. for a person to talk about um uh no, it, it it may not be a, a good day for that to go into such a painful territory of their life. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I, I remember once speaking with someone who had been uh, positioned as um, in denial, who 
um, I, I spent the time getting to know him and his partner uh, uh, and his life and uh, what mattered to him and his life and why his life was important. And he was very enthusiastic about telling me the stories of his life. He's just a wonderful person who had, you know, really cared about people and had very rich relationships with everyone he had known. And at the end of it, he said to me, um, oh, well, you get it now, Sasha. And I said, oh, you know, could you explain a little bit more about what you think I get? And he said, uh, you get while I, uh, why, I, um, why I don't want to die. Hmm. And, you know, he knew. And uh, you get how much I have to lose. And then he talked about his dying. Hmm. So, uh, you know, I think we need to show respect for a, a person's experience and their knowledge of themselves and how they wish to go about it. And I think when we can do that sense. Uh, and skillfully, uh, you know, all sorts of things are made possible. Yeah, yeah. that's beautiful, right? Okay, you you have also written that uh, once a person receives the news they are going to die, the wider social discourse and palliative care ideas begin to collide. And I, I guess I was curious, could you say more about that, this collision of discourses? Well, you imagine that you've just been diagnosed with cancer. Probably one of the ways that you might want to go about that is to uh, uh, be positive and fight. Um, that that yeah, would be right. uh, uh, a, a, a dominant sort of framework of ideas that, that people will perhaps find very helpful. And as time goes on, uh, perhaps it's not going so well and then you um, get a diagnosis, uh, talk to a doctor and they say, look, your cancer is un- incurable and I'm going to refer you to palliative care to, to hospice. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, all of a sudden, um, this idea of being fighting and being positive uh, can, can kind of um, collide with some ideas that are in palliative care, like the, just the word hospice, people associate with dying, don't they? Mm-hmm. And um, yep. in hospice, you know, we're really interested in quality of life and and um, managing symptoms so people can live in ways that matter to them. And also in thinking about how, how do people want to go about the end of their life and die? So it's sort of so. So talking about death is is done quite openly. So here we have this death resisting kind of stance meeting this open talking stance, and it's already a, a huge moment in a person's life to know that their illness isn't curable and that they're going to die. Mm. And all all of a sudden, you know, they're in this environment where you know they're having to deal with it head on and it's really difficult for some people and they may stay with the, the their desire to fight and um, uh, be hopeful and that seems to me to be very understandable but it can also lead if they aren't talking freely or unable to talk easily about particular aspects of the end of their life, it can lead to them being positioned as in denial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, is it worth saying something, Chris, about about hope? Because yeah, hope is very important and and as well. It's uh, 
Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? How? Yeah, because I've heard people, um, you know, I, I have ranges of ideas about hope, right? Sometimes it'll betray you or uh, something like that, but also how can hope sustain? And, it, you know, it's this interesting thing. And I was wondering, yeah, what, what you, especially working with f- folks that are, at, at, you know, near end of life or that are dying, um, w- what is your experience of hope and how it plays out? Or, or people's relationships with it. Yeah, no, um, I, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I was look, actually looking at a paper yesterday about the importance of hope for people and uh, living with a life-ending illness. Um, but I guess I'm quite interested in what this hope is to be in. Uh, hope can mean many things, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a very big word, isn't it? <laughs> so I'd kind of be curious about that, about... Uh, what uh, I, I, I'd want to understand about the hope and what it means to them and what it uh, allows them to do that perhaps they wouldn't be able to do. And uh, I'd also be curious about whether it, it fully fitted with how they wanted to go about living with the illness. It might have some areas w- w- which are very helpful in their life and, th- and there may be a few things that they want to kind of tinker with. Um, yeah, but yeah. yeah, I'd be just wondering about it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I think that I mean, I think that's uh, it can be a lot of different things, and I would be curious, and it can change at any moment too. And so I think I would want to be really curious about that as well. So, uh, and maybe this leads us into our next question. As um, well, I was going to say as a narrative therapist, but I don't want to characterize you. <laughs> In any particular way, but I, I, an assumption I'm making. <laughs> yeah, okay, uh, you <laughs> good, good. Uh, you believe that narrative therapy offers a therapeutic alternative in this sort of work, and I'm, I'm wonder. I guess I'm wondering if you could say more about uh, what narrative practice makes possible for you in this work. I step back just from that question sure, a wee sure, sure. bit and say, you know, for me, first of all, you know, I think. Uh, a recognition of our shared humanity and is very important and the reciprocity in relationships. So before narrative therapy, for me, there's that. Mm-hmm. And um, I really love a quote by Catherine Mannix. Uh, she says that dying belongs to everybody uh, and it's not a medical thing, it's a human thing. And that the really important part of enabling people to die well is to accompany them as humans. And I love that. And and, and where it takes me to is, um, you know, this is something that's happening to all all of us. And this is a natural part of life. And that many families are supporting the people they care about uh, approach end of life in ways that are just wonderful and provide solace and uh, uh, for, for that person. And uh, I, I, so it's a very human thing. And I, I think that, you know, I can be of use sometimes with some families, but many families, are, this, is a, this is a human thing, this support thing as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'll just say that. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so what does narrative therapy offer? Well, narrative therapy offers, I guess, um, for me, um, a vehicle for um, supporting people to go about the end of life 
uh, and living with a life-ending illness in the ways that they want to. And I, I, I guess I would also say that, again, this is a step back, but I have many colleagues who aren't drawing on narrative therapy ideas who offer wonderful support and, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, there are many ways of going about this. Um, but for me, you know, I'm, I, narrative therapy ideas are a, a very good fit with me and who I am and uh, the kind of ideas that inform my life. So uh, it, it's certainly the, the vehicle for me. Um, and you might have to help me out here, Chris, because I've been immersed <laughs> in narrative therapy ideas that sometimes uh, uh, uh it's almost hard to think outside of it, but <laughs> perhaps the, some of those ideas, uh, which are really important, I think are, um, well, I'm, I'm thinking of our stance yeah. now, yeah. you know, that this idea that um, uh, that I know better about how a person might want yeah. to die yeah. rather than them. I mean, golly, <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I certainly don't know better than uh, you about how, how you might want to go about this. And I, and I think that's a really important and helpful idea. So that the stance of a, a narrative therapist, I think, is, is, is very useful. And um, as we've been talking about, I mean, it's such a prescriptively laden area of our lives, isn't mm, it? There's yeah, so right. many prescriptions. So I think that some of the skills around um, pulling apart, teasing apart ideas so that people can have a look at them and think, well, does that fit for me? Is this how I want to do it? I mean, the questioning practices that deconstruct some of those ideas that we take for granted, I think that, that that's really helpful in this area of work and uh you know, I think I'd be concerned if someone didn't have that opportunity. Yeah. 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 Uh, and also uh, receiving the, a diagnosis of a life-ending illness, you know, um, it, it, it doesn't just happen to one person. It happens to many people. It happens to all those who care for that person. So I think narrative therapy offers a way of um, uh, thinking about that and and supporting not just one person but all those affected by um, uh, the, the diagnosis that um, uh, you know may be very unwelcome uh, I, I, just some practical things you know some many of the people that I see are very unwell and tired they, they couldn't be doing writing things or mm-hmm. you know a conversation, mm-hmm. As, as lends itself, you know, they're not up to homework or things like that. So just the, the, the way the the, uh, the conversations go and the, the framework is is, is really helpful. Mm. Um, I think it's so easily to feel totalized by a, a, an illness, isn't it? I love. Uh, I, I think people are so much more than their the illness that they're living with or their current situation. Mm. And so to use, be using relational language, to be uh, seeing people in relationship to their, what they're going through, I think is very, very helpful. Um, and also, um, I mean, when we're approaching the end of our life, you know, stories, 
it's quite natural, isn't it, to mm-hmm. be telling stories as we reflect back and to uh, have a, a form of therapy that's uh, interested in the stories of a person's life and linking those stories together. You know, it it kind of really is quite a good fit. <laughs> yes. What have I what have I missed out? I'm probably. I think too, just another thought, you know, when when we're really unwell and approaching death, so many of the material things are, are stripped away. And uh, I think that uh, a practice that um, researches values and, and the meanings uh, of a person's life is, is really very helpful. Um, and I know that narrative therapy isn't the only one, but certainly... My practice as a narrative therapist is very much based in, in you know, what, what's meaningful to that person and, um, you know, the, the stories of their life that um, express what matters to them. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask about, you've written about listening for and identifying moral virtue and, uh, and how that can reveal attributes that might directly contradict the pathologizing stories during these times. And I'm wondering how you can say, say, say more about that, how you work with moral virtue as a, maybe an antidote to some of these pathologizing ideas. From the first moments when I'm getting to know someone, I'm always listening for um, what matters to them and how they go about it. And, uh, as, as they're talking, I'm listening for expressions of goodness, of, of Aristot- Aristotelian expressions of goodness. You know, they might determination, persistence, love, compassion, kindness. Um, and I'm listening for these um, uh, also uh, when uh, they are informing um, <laughs> a bit of a jumble here but I'm l- listening for those expressions even when they aren't immediately obvious for example um, and I'll share a little story here this is a, a public story uh, uh, in the sense that it's in the public arena for um, some of my writing already and it is um, I'm uh, telling it with the consent of the person and uh, with their identity hidden but um, I once met a man uh, who um, uh, we, uh, when I first met him, you know, he was uh, uh, brusquely uh, greeted me and, we, and he strode down to the counselling room. And as we uh, were about to go through the door, he stopped and he turned to me and he said, I'm on a journey to wellness. If you can't join me on it, I don't want anything to do with you. Now, I was listening for what it was that mattered to him when he said that to me. Um, what, what, I, I was listening for what he valued. And in that moment, what I heard was that he was valuing his life and that he was, had a particular way that he wanted to approach his dying because he was actually not far from death. So I think... Um, uh, when you're listening for what matters to a person, for what is virtuous about them, you know, it can lead to some quite different understandings 
Yeah, so if we're listening for people's intentions and what they hope for, it can lead to some very different understandings about what what their behaviour represents, what they're doing represents. And uh, and then we can inquire into it and um, uh, and they can have a sense of, you know, being seen and heard and felt and known, as Janella Bird just says. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Uh, you have also written about, and this was, uh, I was very curious about this, you've written about creating p- space for silent stories and creating space for privileging a person's own way of talking about their experience. You've said about that, but I'm wondering if you could say more about this idea of silenced stories. I, I think it relates back to what we were talking about um, earlier, Chris, that so often stories of suffering are silenced by unintentionally uh, by some, some of these ideas of uh, the particular ways that we've got to go about living with illness. So very often um, the conversations that I have with people are the first time they've been able to talk about their experience. It may also be that there are loving reasons for why they aren't sharing those stories. They may um not want to um, share them with someone who cares about them for fear of burdening them or worrying them. Um, But often also um, they don't have a way of talking about their experience. Uh, They don't have perhaps a language or um, some understandings that could help them with that. So I'm looking to create a relationship in which Stories of suffering can be told. Um, I'm also looking to ask people questions that give them a way of talking that that fits for them about their experience. And, uh, you know, I mentioned um, uh, listening for uh, virtue, for expressions of goodness. You know, I think if people can do that without fear of being pathologised, you know, it can really open up a lot of space yeah yeah that's great um i have two more questions and this one's it just came to mind for me so i I was wondering you since you have so much experience on this i was wondering what lessons if you think of a few i know this is going to be a big question but if you think of what lessons about living and even dying have you learned and that you carry with you and that you might share with us and our listeners um sharing sharing the wisdom so to speak oh golly um <laughs> well people teach me so much yeah. uh uh I, people have taught me about living uh I, I don't take for granted that i'm going to uh i feel grateful to be 57 uh uh and mm. to have lived this long it's not something i take for granted it, 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 people have taught me to save a life and to uh be, yeah, to be grateful. Um, they've also taught me not to be afraid of dying. I, I feel very steady about it. it um, to me, it's a natural part of life. And uh, I'm lucky also to work in hospice and that I know what can be done, which is just amazing in terms of um, keeping people comfortable and looking after them. You know, um, many people say to me, 
that the last six months or the last year of their life has been one of the best they've ever had, Mm. that they've never felt so connected, they've never um, felt so um, close or lived so meaningfully. So they teach me about what's possible as well. Yeah, Mm. so I I feel very lucky. I mean, I learn from people every day. Yeah, that's wonderful, right? Okay, my last question for you. Thank you so much for this, um, Sasha. Very wonderful. Um, But my last question, and I tend to ask it to most of our guests that come on, is uh, what books, films, or ideas are capturing your attention these days? And I know you have some new work coming out shortly, too, so... Um, if you could tell us about that or what's what's what are you excited about these days? Well, um, I, I do quite a lot of transcribing because I write collaborative stories with people and, uh, uh, I, you know, and I do some of this writing for a wider audience. So I take to my supervisor, who's David Epstein, um, a, a lot of these transcripts and we discuss practice. And David, so David's really familiar with my work. And he said to me, hey, Sasha, you know, um, you've really got to read this book, A Significant Life by Todd May. You know, it's like uh, he's talking about your work. <laughs> so uh, uh, so I did that and I read um, this book by the, by the philosopher Todd May called A Significant Life. And uh, he talks about narrative values and uh, he taught, and this really excited me because he gave a philosophical description of some of the practices that are really important to me. And he talk, he talks about narrative values being, you know, those things that people are engaged with and then how they go about it and whether the how that they go about it uh, is an expression of Aristotelian goodness. And that, and of course, um, a value isn't something that's the work of a moment. So that these are themes in a person's life. And of course, as I'm, I'm gathering stories of people's life that express uh, what matters to them and the, the, the how they go about their life and the living out of uh, uh, what's important to them. Uh, and I track these values, such as compassion might be one that I might track through a person's life or um, courage or uh, love. And uh, and I link them together to form a narrative. And we might have many, many conversations that might pop up through all these conversations. And there I am reading Todd's wonderful description of this and about you know what gives offers us meaning to, to our life and that matters to us that makes us have a sense of living a meaningful life and he's, he and he names these narrative values so that kind of really got me excited and looking back on my practice and all these transcripts and and uh, uh, and seeing them differently seeing the conversations differently yeah that's great Okay, A Significant Life by Todd May. I'll leave a link in our uh, show notes. Uh, if people want to find you or reach out to you, how do they do that? Or is there a, uh, a way of you know, contacting sure. you if they have, anybody has questions? Sure. Um, I, 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 I'd love to hear from anyone. And um, my email is actually out there on the public, in the public arena. It's uh, on the bottom of a lot of my papers. Okay. Um, and you can get me also, it's actually on the bottom of my screen here, I see, sasha.pilkington at harbourhospice.org.nz. Yep. 
people are very welcome to contact me uh, if they have any thoughts or leftovers or wonderings about anything that I've said. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Sasha, for making the time and uh, sharing with us um, your experience. And this has been wonderful. And I, I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Well, that's our show. And as always, thanks for listening. And please share this episode with some friends, people that you think might get a lot out of it. Um, be much appreciated. And of course, a reminder to rate and review the show, uh, whatever platform you're listening on. And also, please come find us on the social medias on Instagram, Facebook, etc. Would like to connect with you. Uh, and just, you know, so we can keep you updated. I can keep you updated on stuff that's going on. So um, as always, thanks for listening. My name is Dr. Chris Hoff. And this has been the Radical Therapist Podcast. Mm-hmm.